more and more people are moving to urban centers and towns, and it is estimated that by 2050, over 50 percent of Africans will be living in urban areas. This is Professor Peter Anyang Nyongo. He's the governor of Kisumu County in Kenya, and here he is speaking at a Nordic Talks event at COP26 in Glasgow. But we have not always planned properly for urban living. As you know, urban areas are bedeviled by poverty, squalor, and a kind of a separation between the poor and the rich in terms of living areas. You have what are called slums or squatters or informal sector. There is no God-given reason why urban areas should be divided thus. But this is the heritage we have, and this is the heritage that endangers our future. Peter is faced with the challenge of a rapidly growing population. Right now, 850,000 people live in the city. But this number is expected to rise to 2 million in less than 30 years. But this is not an isolated issue. What's happening in Kisumu is part of a much wider trend happening across Africa. Africa's total population is expected to reach nearly 2.5 billion people by 2050. That's almost double the current population. And nearly half of all future residents will be urban dwellers. In fact, 17 out of the 20 fastest growing cities in the world are located in Africa. So it's fair to say that urbanization is at the heart of African development. And while it's easy to frame the issue as a major challenge, urbanization also presents significant opportunities. If city governments adopt people-centered and climate-proof approaches now, it's possible to create green and livable cities for years to come. And many cities in the global south are increasingly turning to Nordic cities and businesses for inspiration. In this episode, we'll examine how Nordic models of city planning have sparked green planning movements in Africa, as well as Asia and Latin America. And we'll look at how these models can support economic growth, youth employment, and livable neighborhoods while securing a sustainable future. I'm Afton Halloran, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. During the recent floods that have occurred as a result of global warming, for example, the level of Lake Victoria in uh, Rose, and we in Kisumu who live uh, on the the top of the Gulf of Lake Victoria, we experience a lot of losses. Homes and pastures and businesses and hotels and resorts that were near the lake were swallowed or swept away. This required the relocation of people and the relocation of business which costs a lot of money, and we have not completed that process yet. Kenya is paying the price of climate change, like many countries in the global south. Damages caused by the floods are a drain on the public purse. Like Kisumu, many African cities were not built with climate change or ballooning populations in mind. But many future urban centers have yet to be built. This means that it's possible to take action by planning now. Most of cities are yet still to come. It's estimated that two-thirds of African cities are yet to be built. So we can do it right from the outset if we do it well. And this is where I think we have a lot of learning from the Nordic models. This is Astrid Haas. She's an urban advisor at the African Development Bank. 
cities that exist today, often settlement has happened before planning, which has made it very expensive. But we have uh, now to look at how we plan before settlement. Peter and Astrid were brought together at COP26 in Glasgow in an event that was arranged by the Nordic Development Fund in close cooperation with the African Development Bank. The purpose of this event was to exchange knowledge and experiences in the field of creating green and livable cities. And one major urban planning challenge that was discussed is transportation. For the majority of the cities across the continent, transportation is central to urban planning. And I read this interesting statistic today, I think that came from C40 cities that says public transportation must double by 2030 so that we can meet our 1.5 degree emission targets. Yet cities like my own Kampala, which has about 1.5 million people in resident and then about 2 million commuters every day, doesn't have a public transportation system. So you can imagine how much traffic we sit in on a daily basis. Uh, and a growing amount uh, every day. And so what is what is happening is there's a pro- without public transportation there's a proliferation in the rise of low capacity and carbon inefficient vehicles namely cars. So for cities like Kampala the major challenge is how do we retrofit this infrastructure given people have already settled. Peter has witnessed similar problems in Kenya. The motorbike for example is a major means of transport in urban areas in Kenya. Yet the motorbike is one of the biggest polluters. One motorbike 250cc can give carbon emission worth one ten ton lorry and we have so many of them because they are accessible to the people, they are cheap and so on. But in the end they are not that cheap. If we continue relying on gasoline as a major means of propelling the motorbikes, changing that to electrical power costs money and also needs technology. So we must train ourselves and invest in that process. And those are some of the things why we need this kind of adaptation fund, which realize what the third world can do and urban centers can do in the third world as we change from carbon emission to clear energy that can make us sustainable in the future. And so the city of Kisumu is preparing for a future with two million inhabitants. You realize that we are been living more and more in concrete jungles, and we must thank Nordic countries. You set a good example of, 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 of doing away or limiting concrete jungles by making sure that the green space is also present. Now, we are now planning, actually, in Kisumu. We have been working very closely with the habitat, and we have already done uh, geophysical planning uh, for, for our city. And we now know by planning that we can determine who lives where and how and what kind of infrastructure we need in terms of sewage, water provision, transport and so on, so that Kisumu of the future in 2050, when it is a metropolis perhaps of 2 million people, now it is 800,000 people, will be sustainable. So Peter is seeking inspiration from the Nordic countries. And so is Astrid. The African Development Bank, through support from the Nordic Development Fund, launched its own Urban and Municipal Development Fund in 2019 and its own African Cities program. This has long been the case for cities in Latin America and the Caribbean. Let's turn to Tatiana Gallego-Lizon. She's the Chief of Housing and Urban Development at the Inter-American Development Bank. She joins the discussion online from Washington, D.C., Latin America and the, and the Caribbean countries are just as vulnerable as many other countries around the world in terms of, you know, uh, rising sea levels, natural disasters like hurricanes, which, you know, threaten, you know, the Caribbean on a regular basis and Central America, but also, you know, changes in precipitation patterns, which are, you know, leading to, to 
greater droughts these days, you know, changes in, in the water security cycles. And at the end of the day, this is affecting the people. It's affecting, obviously, you know, the, our planet, but it's affecting the people. It's affecting its productivity. Just to put a number, you know, and share with our audience, you know, damages caused by climate change have been estimated by some studies to be of the order of 100 billion annually by 2050. This is for Latin America and the Caribbean. So it's very, very significant. And on top, you know, just to again, to put it in context and, you know, thinking about urbanization, as we were mentioning a minute ago, you know, more than 80% of the the population of the region lives in cities. Um, you know, there's all these natural disasters which affect us. But in addition to that, you know, cities create, you know, on the one hand, heat cores that intensify the effects of climate change. Some say up to four degrees. But in addition, you know, we have, you know, surfaces which, you know, lose their impermeability and cause a greater number of floods. So the way we have designed our cities, we have constructed our cities, is counter to, um, you know, to, to, to adaptation and resilience. You know, at IDB, especially, you know, recently with our Vision 2025, which is our, Nord, uh, our uh, new corporate strategy, we have emphasized and, and reestablished that sustainability and climate change are basically the core axis of the, all the oh, work good. that we do. And for that, you know, within the division, you know, we, well, not just our urban uh, division, but in addition to that, we work with transport, we work with energy. We're actively working in solutions, as you were mentioning, related to energy, but also related to land planning and land use, electromobility, uh, construction of, you know, sustainable housing and sustainable buildings, which are, you know, um, you know, eco-efficient, and also the use of green infrastructures. And NDF has been for a very long time a real true partner. One of the places inspiring Latin American and African cities is Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland. This may seem odd considering that the population of Iceland is just 350,000, which is hard to compare to the millions of people that inhabit some of the largest cities in the global south. But digging deeper, there are clear historical experiences to draw from. It's easily forgotten that uh, only 100 years ago, Reykjavik was probably the uh, poorest city and Iceland the poorest country in Europe. And uh, when we think about what happened, because now we have uh, quite uh, good wealth per capita, we are very few, I have to admit, we are only 350,000. But per capita, we are scoring quite good. And one of the strong reasons for that, in my opinion, is very fast urbanization. Iceland urbanized faster than any other country in Europe that I know of. This is Dagur Bergthorsen Egertsen. He's been the mayor of Reykjavik since 2014. According to Dagur, it took a crisis to get things going the oil crisis in the 1970s, to be exact. We burned coal and wood and whatever. Uh, the first part of that history, although we were sitting on geothermal energy, uh, Reykjavik in Icelandic, Reyk means steam or smoke, mm. uh, because we had warm water under our feet. But we didn't really have the means or capita to use it, we used it small scale to wash our clothes. Uh, mostly the, the women did that actually. 
But slowly but surely, we hooked every house and every business up to central heating, warm water, uh, which also can be used for cooling if, if you use the technique. And uh, it was in the oil crisis of the 70s when kind of the leap of faith was taken. Uh, it was very capital intensive. But then every household in Reykjavik was hooked up to central heating. And, and it's still the lowest electricity bills probably in, in any city in the world. And I want to stress this, not because uh, geothermal is existing in all parts of Africa, but in Kenya and, and Eastern Africa, it certainly is to a, to a large extent. Uh, what we needed was external funds, uh, capital, good loans, very patient loans for infrastructure that is essentially local. And it was uh, a locally city-owned company that did uh, the things and still holds on to the infrastructure and still keeps the electricity and heating bills low. But how does this compare to what's happening in Kenya? Maybe your inner voice is saying, okay, yeah, this is Scandinavia, this is Iceland. Uh, we can't do this uh, in all of the world. But if we think again and go just historically to the numbers, the GDP of the Scandinavian countries were very close to the average of Africa in 72. Mm -hmm. Norway and Iceland were very close under Namibia, mm -hmm. uh, a bit over Egypt now. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's kind of, I, I think that with capital investment, you are at a stage of urbanization where you can build on good plans mm -hmm. as you are doing. That's exactly the philosophy behind the cooperation between the Inter-American Development Bank and the Nordic Development Fund, NDF. A delegation of representatives from Latin America and the Caribbean visited Copenhagen and Malmö to seek inspiration. Tatiana sums up the delegation's three main takeaways from the experience. The first one was, you know, that the strategies that the Nordic countries follow are number one, people center, and number two, they're at human scale. This means that, you know, we're working basically with the neighborhood, character, and identity. So, you know, these mega cities, you know, that are being created need to take into consideration some of these elements to be able to be adaptable. Secondly, in terms of decarbonization, I think, you know, we learn an awful lot about, you know, transition to green energy and also taking an approach to a holistic transit. For that, you know, we looked at solutions, you know, of improved energy efficiency, you know, in the household, but also on city distribution systems. And then also in the areas of decarbonization, the topic of city planning was very, very important. Active mobility the importance of non-motorized solutions like the bicycle. I mean, we love to hear that 60 to 70% of the of, 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 of the city actually moves daily for a variety of, of, of needs through, you know, own non-motorized solutions. And in addition to that, the value of public space in what it's a people center, a city. And Last but not least, I wanted to say that in adaptation and resiliency, nature-based solutions are, you know, one of the key takings that, you know, um, our mayors brought from, you know, their visit. Coastal protection, 
positive water cycles, but also, you know, how all those elements of greenery affect positively health and well-being. The ideas that blossom from the workshops in Copenhagen and Malmo are now being put into action. And they have taken it back to their own countries and, and you know, experimented with it. For instance, on non-motorized uh, transport, uh, the city of Mendoza is now implementing, uh, you know, a metropolitan bicycle lane system that will encourage the people in the city to be able to move, uh, you know, independently, you know, through a non-motorized solution. And, and, you know, like that, we have many other cases which are slowly, you know, taking sing, taking, um, you know, an opportunity to, to be implemented. Specifically with NDF, we work in three major um, cities, which were Tegucigalpa, Cochabamba in, sorry, Tegucigalpa in Honduras, Cochabamba in Bolivia. And in addition to that, we also worked in uh, Managua, in Nicaragua. And last but not least, we have been designing, for instance, a new metropolitan park, you know, for, um, for La Paz and El Alto in Bolivia, which will become the lungs of the city. This is absolutely essential, you know, in, in creating cities and making sure that they are well adapted and, you know, respond to the needs of the future. According to Tatiana, Dagur, Peter and Astrid, urbanization should not be seen as a threat to sustainable development. In fact, it's an opportunity. Urbanization is often talk, talked about as a negative thing. It's not. Cities are places where people share things with each other, do business, and do a lot of great things that they didn't know existed. Astrid also sees opportunities. Urbanization is often framed as a challenge, but actually it's an opportunity. There's not a single country in the world that is developed today that has done so without urbanizing. So how do we unlock that opportunity in Africa? And I think we have a lot to learn from Nordic countries. Peter is quick to react to the statements of Astrid and Dagger. But I think there's also a problem we have, the tyranny of impossibility. You, you begin planning and the tyranny of impossibility makes it difficult for you to make choices. And remember, Malimo Julius Nyerere once said, to plan is to choose. If you really have chosen that you're going to rely on geothermal power, you have chosen. Don't let the fear of impossibility or the tyranny of impossibility take you away from that. In the case of Kenya, for example, our chairman of the Public Investment Committee in Parliament in 1994, when we were debating this uh, independent power producer thing, and my committee refused it. But the government went ahead and implemented it. Look at the result now. At that point in time, it had gone headlong. And geothermal was already known as an alternative source of power to independent power producers. But the fear of impossibility, the failure to choose. Dagger sees a clear window of opportunity for Africa. I also think that we, we have to believe in cities mm -hmm. and we have to believe in local communities and we have to trust them to take care of their own infrastructure and uh, get the necessary revenue from the population and, mm -hmm. and kind of build trust. And, but, but at some point, it, it has to be a leap of faith. But I, I think that time has come. And, and I think the urgency from climate issues, the urgency of urbanization, but also the opportunities maybe in, in both fields for, for Africa could be that moment. 
So what should be done to seize this opportunity in the years to come? Tatiana first. Don't be afraid to retrofit and to change. Cities are living. Cities belong to their um, uh, to their citizens. So you also have to plan to retrofit. That's one of the things that we're bringing from, you know, Latin America, where, you know, the population is already consolidated. But it's also something that we learn in the Nordic countries, how the city, you know, the cities actually, you know, moved and changed and adapted with their people. So in the same way that it's wonderful to plan ahead, you know, also, don't be afraid to retrofit. And Astrid? My takeaway is uh, when it comes to Nordic cities and, and the, the, the piece that I will continue to echo as I work with mayors uh, and city managers across the continent and CFOs through the CFO network is putting people and the environment at the center of urban life. And when we think about what we're going to plan and what we're planning for, it's not an abstract. It's about the person and it's about the environment. Now, Peter. I like what you said the two of them, that don't be afraid to retrofit. When you retrofit, it leads to some waste. You destroy buildings, roofs come down, and you think you're wasting some things. But waste is actually wealth. You can turn that waste into new wealth. I've seen people from the informal sector going to sites where houses are being brought down, and they will take everything with them, including the stones. They're not taking them because they're doing you a good turn. They're taking them because they're turning that into wealth. And finally, Dagur. Maybe one of the takeaways is that we remember how uh, kind of our own history and how, how short the history from kind of poverty and even absolute poverty to, to wealth uh, is. And, and that's uh, history not for a part of the world, but all of the world. Urban planning is as much about planning for today as it is for tomorrow. And many of the challenges faced by cities in Latin America, Asia and Africa are not unique to the global south. Even here in the Nordics, we've experienced the effects of climate change on our cities too. More than half of the global population now lives in cities. This means that we're all in this together. Exchanging knowledge and experiences will bring us closer to a sustainable and livable future. Do you want to organize your own Nordic Talks event? Check out nordictalks.com for all of the resources that you'll need to get started. I'm Afton Halloran. Thanks for listening. <laughs>